0: Even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. For you formed my inward parts. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there were none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God! How vast is the sum of them! If I would count them, there are more than the sand. I awake, and I am with you still. O oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God! O men of blood, depart from me! They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. Lord, have your way among us this morning, and lead us in the way everlasting for your glory, for our good, and the advancement of your gospel, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may have a seat. Well, while I was on sabbatical, I spent some time with a counselor, a pastoral counselor, to just work through some things in my own soul. Yes, I'm a mess. I'm broken. I have things to work through. So do all of you. You should all get some counseling. Amen? I know a lot of you have seen counselors and are seeing counselors, and I think it's a great thing for us to do because we live in this world filled with so much pain and brokenness, and we contribute to a lot of it, and we are recipients of a lot of pain and brokenness and offenses. And so I spent some time with a counselor over sabbatical, and after he listened to me whine and complain for a while, some of it was about you. No surprise, right? Being a pastor, I have to stand in front of you week in and week out and then get your emails. It's awful. But I love you. (laughs) I spent some time just kind kind of sharing with him some things that were in my soul and some things that I was wrestling with. And honestly, a lot of it had to do with just my own comparison, comparing myself to other pastors, comparing myself to other leaders and expectation, sharing with him what I thought people expected of me as a pastor or me as a leader. All of us deal with comparison and expectation, right? And then pastors have their own little issues to deal with as far as comparison and expectation. And so I was sharing with him some of this junk in my soul. And he said, Andrew, I want you to read Psalm 139. Puke. Because for me, as soon as he said it, I knew what the psalm was, I grew up in the church. Psalm 139 is a passage that has been used in women's ministries. I'm not a woman. It's been used in children's ministries. I used to be a child. And it's been kind of co-opted by the pro-life movement. To talk about life beginning at conception, being formed in the womb. And I think it's good and right to use this passage for pro-life discussions and thoughts. I think it's good and right to use this passage in children's ministry. And I think it's good and right to use this passage in women's ministry. But I thought, why should I read this passage? But I did what I was told. I started reading Psalm 139. And it hit me, I've never read this psalm for myself. I've always read it with other people in mind, other things in mind, kind of theoretically thinking that, yes, all life is sacred. Life matters. People matter. Life is sacred. But I've never turned it to myself and, and actually thought, Am I fearfully and wonderfully made? I mean, theoretically, yes, I know that. Human life matters. I'm a human, right? But, but what's unique about Andrew? How did God form me? How did God wire me? And so my first reaction was, I'm going to discard this psalm. I'm going to do my, do my assignment from my counselor, but it's not going to mean anything for me. And as I continued to read this psalm, God continued to massage into my soul, this message that I needed to hear. So I'm going to share it with you, and I think it's going to be helpful to some of you. Let me summarize Psalm 139 in the way that God kind of helped me to understand this. Here's here's a statement that I wrote for myself that I want to share with you. To live secure in an age of insecurity created by a culture of soul-sucking comparison, expectation, deconstruction, and accusation, you must embrace who God created you to be And resist violating yourself and God by trying to be someone you're not. See, God wants his children, his sons and his daughters to live with security. To have eternal security, yes, but also to know that we are in his presence, that we are in his arms, that we have his love, that we don't earn his love by what we do and we don't lose his love by what we don't do. I mean, scriptures is clear, the scriptures are clear on that. And so it was a good reminder to me that, that in this age of insecurity, and oh, there's so much insecurity in our culture in our day and age. And I, over a sabbatical, I spent a lot of time with a few friends, and all of them are wrestling through insecurities. Even last Sunday, my friend Andy preached, and I was talking with somebody from our church for a few minutes after the service, and I just sensed insecurity in their life and in their voice and it's because we live in this culture that's filled with soul-sucking comparison. What do you think social media does? You go on Instagram, you go on Facebook, you go on Twitter, you check your Snapchat, everybody's posting stuff, they're posting their best life now, and you're comparing, they're posting the house projects that they've completed, or, or the pool that they just put into their backyard, and you're like, I don't have that kind of money, I don't have that kind of skill, I don't have that kind of personality, I don't have this kind of thought process, and so you start subtly, subconsciously comparing yourself to others. I don't have a spouse. I want a spouse. They have spouses. I don't have kids. I want kids. They have kids. I have too many kids. I don't want that many kids. They don't have any kids. How dare I? You're right. I love having children. (laughs) Just comparison, right? It's everywhere. And how about expectation? Expectation. People just expect you, right? I mean, we're, we live in this upwardly mobile society and so many people and so many things and everybody who gets, in my world, in the pastoral world, who gets book deals or writing on blogs or a podcast that people tune into or like articles and things that people repost and repost and repost, there's this expectation that you're always going up and to the right, that you're advancing in your career, where, where, whatever stage of life you're in. You're advancing in your career. You're becoming a better father, a better mother, a better spouse, a better neighbor, a better whatever it is. And there's this expectation placed upon you. Whatever stage of life you're in, whatever walk of life you're in, there's expectations. Maybe some people have placed those expectations upon you. Maybe you're just piling them upon yourself like I was partially doing. Like I just thought that people expected me to be something, right? I mean, I'm a pastor, so I I think that people... Compare me to or expect me to have the kind of mind of Tim Keller or the kind of wit of Matt Chandler or the kind of like suave and sensitivity of a John Mark Comer or the kind of passion of a John Piper, but without being John Piper, right? And, and fill it in anywhere. So that, so that was all sitting with me. I'm none of that. I'm unlike any of those people I just mentioned. Amen. Amen. <laughs> and aren't we all glad for it? And then we live in this culture of accusation. We're trying to figure things out, right? And, and we're accused of being bigots or being ignorant or being racist or being homophobic or being liberal or being conservative or being a capitalist or being a communist, whatever it is, right? Accusation runs rampant in our culture right now. Like, you watch the news, all the news does is tear other people down. Stop watching the news, please. For your own soul. It's soul-sucking accusation. Deconstruction. We live in this culture where people are deconstructing, and there's many things that we need to deconstruct. For some people, that word is very fearful, like, oh, we've got to stop younger Christians from deconstructing their faith. Every generation has things that they have to deconstruct because every generation puts things around the gospel We we add in extra law, extra nuances, extra kind of religious culture that has nothing to do with Jesus or the Bible. And so every new generation has to kind of deconstruct. Is a pastor allowed to say this, to say that? Is a Christian allowed to think this, to think that? Are they allowed to watch this movie or play cards? Right? And so every generation has something to deconstruct, but right now we're just deconstructing everything. And, And it seems like the ground that we stand on is, shifting and shaking and we don't know what we can trust and so we live in this culture of soul sucking comparison expectation deconstruction and accusation and in order for me to get through that and I think in order for us to get through that we need to embrace who God created us to be you need to embrace who God created you to be my counselor said this, he said, as you read Psalm 139, make a list of the ways that God has made you uniquely you. And then think about all the ways that you've been violating that for the past couple years trying to be somebody that you're not. And oh, church family, that was so good for me. And I, and I realize this sounds, all of, all of you like more reformed, heavy Bible preaching people, you're like, this sounds like a pretty man-centered sermon. Well, calm down right? This is the world that we live in. We're always judging what we hear, what we think, what we say. There's, there's expectation comparison. We're deconstructing what people say as they say it. We're comparing it. And, and so I had that same thought, like, it doesn't matter who I am. It all matters about who God is. I only care about who God is. Aren't, aren't I supposed to read the scriptures only knowing who God is? And as I wrote this down and as I wrestled through this text, I realized, oh, God created me. In a certain way. My personality, my habits, my interests, yes, they need to be redeemed and sanctified, right? I don't need to grow in maturity. We all need to grow in maturity. But becoming like Christ doesn't mean that you violate and abandon who you are. It means that you become a sanctified version, a more holy version of you. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. The way that you process information. The way that you communicate information, the way that you interact with people, there's something about you that God created on purpose, with intention. And so in order for you to overcome this age of insecurity, you need to learn who you are, who God made you to be, and stop violating yourself, and in fact, violating God, because when you try to change what the Creator has made, you're violating the Creator, Allow God to grow you and sanctify you and mature you, but don't change or strive to change who created, who he created you to be. And so that's kind of the big idea. I want to look now at Psalm 139, and we're going to see three truths in this passage and four responses. Three truths and four responses. The first truth comes in verses 1 through 6, and it is that you are intimately known and loved. Look at these verses. Oh Lord, you have searched me. And this is a psalm written by David, King David of Israel. He says, Oh Lord, that you have searched me and you know me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. That's terrifying. Don't many of us spend a lot of our life trying to make sure that people don't know what we're thinking? Here he says of God, even your even your spouse your siblings your roommates the people that you're closest to how much of your life is spent trying to filter what you think from them finding out what you think and here's the point god knows you intimately he knows your thoughts he discerns your thoughts from afar verse 3 you search out my path and my lying down you are acquainted with all my ways that's terrifying if this isn't a good, loving God who cares deeply about you, right? You know all my ways? Talk about being exposed. Talk about the, the, the propensity to be naked and ashamed, for somebody to see everything and know everything. If we were to put your thoughts up on a screen behind us, if we were to put your, all your actions on, we would all run and hide and abandon. And hear the psalmist is saying that God knows him intimately, as deeply as possible. God knows David. God knows you more than you know yourself. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. So much of our lives are spent hiding our true selves because we think we won't be loved if people see our true self or projecting who we think we want other people to see. And here David is saying there's no hiding from God. There's no projecting to God. God knows you intimately and deeply. Even before you speak he knows what's going on in your head. And even before you formulate a thought, like sometimes, sometimes our bodies communicate what's really going on even before we can speak it right. When we get stressed, when we get sick, when we get tired, sometimes our bodies respond before we even can comprehend what's going on. God knows even before our bodies know that we're stressed, that we're burnt out, that we're weak, that we're sick, that we're tired. Before we can articulate what's wrong, God knows. He's with us. We can't hide from him. And here's the glorious truth. He knows you intimately, and yet he loves you. That those parts of you that you think, if the people close to me know this thought, I'm not sure they'll still love me. The people close to me know this reaction, I'm not sure that they'll still love me. Let me tell you from experience there are people in this church who you can share all of those things with and they'll still love you. I've experienced that from you. Thank you, church family. But it's a pretty human reaction to think, I, I gotta hide or I gotta project, I gotta pretend or project. And here, David is saying, No, no, God sees you, He knows you intimately, and yet he loves you. The second truth here is that you are never alone. Verse 7 through 12, David says, where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. So heaven here, he, he's, saying, he's picturing heaven as high above the heavens, the skies, Sheol that that was used in the Hebrew mind and language for the ground. So he's saying, as high as I can go, as low as I can go, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning, this is a reference to where does the sun come up? In the east. If I take my wings of the morning, where the sun rises in the east, and dwell in the midst, and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea. David's in Jerusalem. The Mediterranean Sea is at the west. So he's saying, as far as east is from the west, where the sun comes up, where the sun goes down over the Mediterranean Sea. As high as I can go, as low as I can go, as far east as I can go, as far west as I can go, God, you are there. Even there, your hand shall lead me. Think about that. Even there, your hand shall lead me. Wherever I go, God, your hand shall lead me. And your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me. How many times have you been just trapped by darkness? You've walked into darkness on your own or something has happened to you or somebody has done something to you dark and you just carry this cloud of darkness, of shame, of depression, of anger you don't even know you can't even articulate it and here david is saying regardless of where i go if i am your child if i have been in a covenant relationship with you my god my father you are there you don't abandon me in the darkness you don't leave me when i go east you don't leave me when i go west well we all know that the the you go west young man right because the evil goes east any michael w smith fans like two of you such an old reference i'm sorry about that If I say, Surely the darkness shall cover me, and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. You break into my darkness, you bring light, even night is as bright as day, for darkness as is as light with you. We just sang it this morning in the first song, Sons and Daughters, no matter where we go, we are close to the Father's heart. So you church family, here's the truth. If you are in a covenant relationship with God through his son, Jesus Christ, there's gonna be times where you rebel. There's gonna be times where you run. There's gonna be times where you kick and scream against your father's good leadership, against him trying to lead you into the green pastures. There's gonna be times where you run the opposite way. And here David is saying, regardless of where we go, regardless of what we do, if we're in a covenant relationship with God, God is with us. In the valley of the shadow of death, God is there. You can't outrun God's love. God doesn't stop loving you because of a series or a pattern of disobedience. Now, there's going to be some consequences for series and patterns of disobedience. There's going to be some discipline But God doesn't withhold his love or stop loving you because you run from him. He chases after you. He is everywhere. You can't run somewhere where God isn't. Third truth, verses 13 through 16. David writes, For you formed my inward parts. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, my nose, my soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance, in your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there were none of them. You are wonderfully made. My fear is that far too many of us who who grew up in Christian circles, and if you didn't grow up in a Christian circle, you've maybe heard this like taught to you in a way where it's just not quite filled with as much truth. Like, you're wonderfully made, period. Well, who made me? Why am I wonderful? If there's no wonderful creator, if there's no fearful God, I love how David here says, I praise you for I am fearfully, wonderfully made. Verse 14, wonderful are your works, We're wonderful, we're meaningful, we're significant. Your life is wonderful, your life is significant, your life has purpose because you were created by a God who is wonderful, by a God who is fearful, by a God who does wonderful works and things. So I love how David puts these two together and sometimes in the world we grow up just hearing this talk like, you're wonderful, you're unique, you're a snowflake. No two are alike. That's true, by the way. You are a snowflake. Because God wonderfully made you. See see the cliche and kitschy nature of this passage? It can be really puke factor. But there's something so rich, so needed here, at least for my soul. So if I'm just preaching myself today, that's fine. But I think you need this as well. David says, you formed my inward parts. You knit me together in my mother's womb. David's self-reflecting here. He's not using this passage in a cultural, political movement. He's not using this passage towards others. He's reflecting and he's saying, God, you made me fearfully and wonderfully. I'm different than all the others. You knew me in my mother's womb. In fact, David in Psalm 51, he says that his mother bore him in sin. She conceived him in sin. There's debate about what that means. We don't know who David's mother was. His dad was Jesse. We don't know David's mother. There's, there's some Jewish tradition that thinks like David was born out of adultery. And that's why he was kind of rejected by his other brothers and why he was kind of the outcast. And when, when they were looking at Jesse's sons to be the king who would replace Saul, David was overlooked. And so David, is. we don't know. We don't know who his mother is, but there's, it's very possible that he had some insecurity because he never fit in with all of his older brothers. He was always kind of the outcast of the family. He was overlooked in the family. And yet he's reflecting and saying, I am fearfully and wonderfully made. It's not just David. I mean, evangelical churches, for the most part, have no problem using this passage for other people but then when you're wrestling with sin or when you're comparing yourself to people who, per, who you perceive to be better Christians than you, this is something that we do. We like see somebody, a role model, a Christian figure that we want to imitate and we start to change to become like them. Let me tell you, there's no life in that. Hebrews 13 says, Remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you and imitate their faith. It says imitate their faith. It doesn't say imitate their life. You can't change your personality to be like somebody who you look up to. You can look up to their faith. You can imitate their faith. You cannot become them. Your personality, your wirings, your likes, your interests, your hobbies are different and you must embrace that if you want to live fully for God. And I think sometimes we, we kind of whitewash our personality. We whitewash our interests or we, we, we like, in the Christian church, We sometimes we become like I don't know. Jesus calls us to die to self, right? Pick up our cross and follow him daily. And that's truth. Jesus teaches us that. But he doesn't say lose your personality. Check your personality at the door. Check your hobbies, your interests, your likes at the door and become like everybody else. No. We're called to 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 grow in the fruit of the spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. All of us. But love looks different for all of us. We express it differently. Some of you love giving hugs. Some of you hate hugs. Some of you love sending notes to people, remembering their anniversaries or their birthdays. Others are like, I've never thought of that in my life. In fact, I get these and I'm like, why did they waste their time sending me that? Right? But then we, we like to kind of judge people based off of how we're wired. We think, well, if they would do what I do, then everything would be a little better. Or if I could do what they do, then I would be a little bit better. And you just got to come to a place where you realize... Like, do some self-assessment. How has God made you? Maybe you should all do what I did on sabbatical. Read this and think, how has God wired me? How has God uniquely crafted me? And how can I use that for his glory? Your nature, your personality, your likes, your interests matter to God. And he wants to use who he created you to be for his glory, for your good, and the good of those that you do life with in the advancement of his gospel. You actually give other people a better taste of God when you are authentically you. Not when you're trying to be some like lame preconceived notion of what you think a Christian is supposed to be. I went up, I did a couple silent retreats on my sabbatical and I went, the first week that I was on sabbatical, I did a three-day and three-night silent retreat by myself and I went up to this great hermitage, a cabin in the woods at this place that I love going to. I've been going to this camp since I was three and I, I wanted to maximize my sabbatical, right? So first week, I'm like, all right, three months to like work on all this junk in my soul and get right with God and so, God, let's do this thing. I'm going to fast, I'm going to pray, I'm going to read my Bible, I'm going to be on my face before you, worshiping you, and God, I want you to meet me like you did Moses in a burning bush. I want you to speak to me, I want you to discipline me, I want you to work me over. I know I've got sin that I need to repent of, I know I've got junk that I need to work on, and so we're going to get our relationship right. That was my thought. So I'm driving up, and I was like, I think I should fast, but also I kind of don't want to fast. (laughs) Because food is really good. God, what do you want? Really, I really want to do what you want me to do. And so I get there. I drive in, unload my stuff. I walk down to the lake, and I'm like, God, what do you want me to do? And I heard his voice, not audibly, but it was him just massaging this into my soul. He said, what do you want to do? I'm like, wait. I'm like, Now, don't judge me. If you're not a Reformed Christian, I encourage you to keep coming here because we're not all Reformed Christians leaning that way theologically. But I personally am a little more persuaded that way. I'm like, I don't get to tell God what I want. God tells me what he wants. I'm in submission to him. He's my boss. He's my employer. He's my Lord. He's my master. He's my Savior. God, tell me what to do and I will do it. And I just heard this gentle voice. What do you want to do, Andrew? I'm like, so I had to wrestle with that. That's not right. And I was like, okay, if that is God, God, if that's you asking me what I want to do, here's what I want to do. I want to go fish. There's a canoe. There's some reeds that I fished in when I was a kid and we caught crappies and I want to go see if there's crappies in those reeds and I want to put a brat onto a hand-whittled stick and cook it over a fire. But I think I should fast. And God was like, no. Drive to town, get brats. Let's go fishing together. Let's eat brats together. Let's enjoy time together and i did it and it was so sweet and the brat was a little salty but the time was really really sweet and and god just in that the first week of sabbatical god started massaging into my soul this reminder that yes 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 you're my slave you're my servant you can bow down and kneel before me and worship me that's all good and right but i'm also your father And I've created you wonderfully and different than anybody else, so maybe somebody else should fasten this retreat, but you know what? You're adventurous. You like exploring. You like nature. You love fires. You love crispy meat. And you know what? I want to enjoy that with you, my son. And so I spent time in communion with God, not violating myself or him by trying to be somebody else or to come to him in a inauthentic way, but I feel like God gave me the freedom to just come and to be with him. And then you know what? This continued to, to make more sense to me as sabbatical went on. One morning I was journaling just about like what it means for God to be my father and for me to be his son. And my kids came out and they were sitting by me and I was like, what a poor relationship that we would have if it was a one-way street, if I was just like, hey, kids, do this, do that, do this, do that. I want to do this. I want to do that. I want to do this. I want to do that. And it was this profound moment where God was like, the same way that you care about what your kids care about, like when, when you have days with them, when you, when you do a date with your daughter Avery, your son Judah, or your daughter Oakley, you say, what do you want to do? Because you as a father, you take joy in doing what your kids want to do because they are wonderfully and fearfully made and it brings you joy to do the things that they like to do God was massaging into my heart same thing is true for our relationship I like what you like I like to join you in what you do your hobbies can become my hobbies your pastimes can become my pastimes baseball by the way national pastime The things that you enjoy, I want to enjoy with you. I'm not asking you to violate yourself in this life of discipleship. I'm asking you to become more like me by enjoying time with me and bringing me with you as you go. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. You are uniquely a snowflake, Andrew. Keep that in mind. And I think it's good and right for us to keep that in mind. I mean, we live in the age of Enneagrams and Strength Finders and Myers-Briggs and whatever you are on those things. God created you, nature, and then nurture wherever you grew up, whatever environment you grew up in, helped to form you in a certain way that, yes, there's some chiseling, some refining, some maturing that needs to happen, but God does not want to whitewash you and turn you into somebody else. You are fearfully and wonderfully made just like David. David can say that because he's in a covenant relationship with God. You can say that if you're in a covenant relationship with God through his son, Jesus Christ. And then you must embrace who God has created you to be so that you could flourish. So that the people in your life could flourish. So that you could allow them to flourish. Because if you're always trying to conform other people in your life into your image or what you think they ought to be like or what you think a good Christian looks like, that's going to be devastating upon them. Some of you grew up in that kind of environment where parents, pastors, teachers, whatever, they're always kind of giving you kind of a narrow, like one-dimensional view of a Christian. Let me tell you this, life with Jesus is not one-dimensional. It's an incredible adventure filled with mystery, filled with forgiveness, filled with friendship. And so embrace who God has created you to be and become all that he has created you to be in his power, for his glory. For your good and the advancement of his gospel. Now, four quick responses. Look at verse 17 and 18. First response is to worship God. David says, How precious to me are your thoughts, O God? How vast is the sum of them? If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake and I am still with you. This entire psalm is a psalm of worship. So those of you concerned about like man-centered worship versus God-centered worship, don't worry, I'm not preaching that we are to be worshipped. God is to be worshipped. That's what David is doing here. He, he, and part of worshipping God is acknowledging his good creation in embracing his good creation. But David says when he considers who he is, how God has made him, how God uniquely uses David's wirings, his likes, his interests, how God has orchestrated his life, it causes David to worship. How precious, God, are your thoughts. And so as we embrace the truths of this passage, we must respond. The truths of who God is and the truth of who he created you to be, you respond by worshiping. Secondly, we respond by concerning ourselves with his reputation, not our own. So there's this weird little section here where David, like in the middle of the snowflake psalm, goes into this thing about the enemies, right? Verse 19 Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God! O men of blood, depart from me! They speak against you with malicious intent, your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not load those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. So the rest of this psalm is very cliche and kitschy and makes it on like kids' ministry walls and women's ministries. This passage doesn't. What what is David getting at? Why does he place this right in the middle of this psalm? Well, David is living with real enemies, physical enemies armies, other nations who want to destroy God and his people. So David has this type of cultural experience that is less of a reality for us. But here's the reality. David is absolutely concerned with God's reputation. He is concerned with God's name being honored, God's name being glorified. Look at verse 20. He says, your enemies take your name in vain. Remember the, I think it's the third or the fourth commandment. Don't hold me to it now. It's one of the ten Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. David's concerned, and, and this doesn't just mean saying OMG or using God in a non prayerful way. It means anything that we do that gives God a poor name. When we cheat, when we rob, when we steal, when we don't care about the things that break God's heart, it takes God's name in vain. And David is passionate, he's concerned with God's reputation. It's important for us to be reminded as we look at the psalm and we think about how God has fearfully and wonderfully made us. Learning yourself, learning your personality, your habits, your strengths, your weaknesses, your whatever, Enneagram type, your Myers Briggs, whatever it may be. Learning that is good. It's a good, helpful tool. But you don't use that to make your own reputation great. You don't use it to elevate yourself. You don't use it to to expand your own platform and influence. You are wrapped up with and concerned with God's reputation. God, how have you created me? And how can I live my life for your glory, for the good of others, and the advancement of your gospel? Third response is to humble yourself. David comes out of this this prayer about the wicked, and then he turns it back on himself. He knows that, that he's not far off from being wicked himself. He says, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. Again, he's willing to be vulnerable and open and intimate with God. Search me, try me, know me, and see if there be any grievous way in me. So we must humble ourselves as we learn about ourselves and as we embrace who God has created us to be, we know that going too far down that road can can continue to elevate self it can it can fill us with pride it can it can help us to become comfortable with our sin rather than wanting to repent of our sin right there's a difference between God's holy wiring of you and your personnel and your likes and your hobbies and your interests and where sin creeps in and all of a sudden it's like, yes, God wired me to be adventurous. That doesn't mean I can leave my family behind and go live in the woods. Right? Yes, God has wired, I got a whole list of ways that God has wired me. It doesn't mean that I can't be well-balanced and and that I can't grow. It means that I should do those things, right? And so we have to be humble before God. God, search me, know me, try me. See if there be any grievous way in me. And then on the counter, here's the the fourth thing that we do that we respond to is we dependently follow the way. It says, see if there's any grievous way in me and then lead me in the way everlasting because on my own ways, I, I go grievous, I go gross, I go dark, I go selfish, I go proud. And so reveal to me the ways that I will take who you have fearfully and wonderfully made and I will use it for my own glory, I will use it for my own success, I will use it for my own wants, my own needs, and reveal that to me and then lead me in the way that you would have me go. We dependently follow Jesus the way. I love how David here, even in the psalm, he's so dependent on God's leadership. The fourth response is to dependently follow the way. If you remember, Jesus came on the scene, God in flesh, Jesus, the second Adam, the perfect man, the true picture and embodiment of humanity. And he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And here David is saying that we're, we're, we're even incapable of walking in the right ways without God. So he dependently says, lead me, lead me, lead me in the way everlasting. And so church family, this morning we're going to take communion like we do every Sunday at Park Community Church. The band is going to come back up and they're going to play Psalm 139 put to music. And as they do, I want you to take communion when you feel led and ready being reminded that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. You've been created uniquely, wonderfully, fearfully by God, and he longs to lead you in the way everlasting. But he leads each of us differently. Same destination, right? Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. Same destination, But we all have different experiences, different journeys of following Jesus the way. And so this morning as the song is played and as you take communion, take it when you feel led and ready. If you've given your life over to the Lord, if you believe that he is the way, the truth, and the life, we invite you to take this with us. Being reminded that God wanted relationship with you so deeply that he sent Jesus his son to shed his blood for the forgiveness of your sins for his body to be sacrificed in your place on your behalf. Let me pray, and then just sit and reflect and take communion when you're ready. God, we thank you for who you are. Lord, we thank thank you that you are worthy to be feared, and that you are a wonderful creator. Lord, I thank you that you look at us and not just see us as Worthless sinners in need of redemption, though we are. But you see your creation, people who you have formed wonderfully, fearfully, with certain personalities and habits and interests and likes and dislikes. And you want to redeem that and use that. You want to use each one of us individually and uniquely for your glory, for the good of those who we do life with in the advancement of your gospel. So we thank you, Lord Jesus, for redeeming us and making us new. We take communion now in remembrance of you. In your name we pray. Amen.